By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Although we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realise that what we are in our letters when we are absent we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as will be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that, as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but... Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. For it is not those who commend themselves who are approved, but those whom the Lord commends. Thanks, Gav. Well, good morning. It's uh, great, great to be here with you this morning. And as we come to uh, reflect on this part of God's word, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this time together. And we ask that you would uh, give us insight and understanding. Please work in our hearts by your spirit. Please shape us into the people that you want us to be. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was, uh, I was uh, recently reading a, a great little commentary on 2 Corinthians called uh, 2 Corinthians... Here we are. 2 Corinthians for you. It's by uh, Gary Miller. Or Gary Miller, the uh, great uh, Irishman. Um, who also wrote these studies that I know a lot of our growth groups have been working through. And uh, I learnt the origin of a phrase that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, it began in 1814 uh, with Russian poet and author uh, Ivan Andreevich Krylov. Uh, I was practising that, um, getting, the, getting the pronunciation correct. Uh, apologies to any Russians uh, amongst us. Um, who wrote a, a fable called The Inquisitive Man in which a man goes into a museum and he examines all sorts of tiny details but fails to notice an elephant. 
Uh, later, Fyodor Dostoevsky uh, wrote in his novel Demons, he wrote, Belinsky was just like Krylov's inquisitive man who didn't notice the elephant in the museum. And from that phrase, elephant in the museum uh, went on a journey and eventually became the elephant in the room. A saying that is used to describe a big and obvious issue that has not been addressed up until now, but shortly will be. And I reckon that the elephant in the room kind of sums up what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because uh, you might have noticed that up until, uh, up until now, Paul hasn't directly addressed the, the false teachers that have come in amongst the Corinthian church. They've caused trouble, they've leveled various accusations against Paul, and they're obviously there in the room, so to speak. Uh, we see that throughout the letter. Uh, you see it in, uh, in Paul's need, uh, so in the early chapters, his need to defend himself and his ministry. You see it in his warning of the Corinthians to not be yoked together with uh, unbelievers in chapter 6. But now here in chapter 10, he turns to address the very large, impressive-sounding, philosophically sophisticated elephant in the room. He finally begins to address the accusations that have been levelled against him. Uh, they've been levelled against him by these, um, these divisive, arrogant super-apostles, as they're called in the, in the next chapter, which uh, you, you'll look at next week. And I reckon uh, being personally attacked as Paul was, I reckon that's one of the harder things to cope with in life for any of us. And yet I think it's also one of the things that is most certain for, for those who are followers of Jesus. We do face criticism, we face attacks, we, we face accusations. Sometimes they're, uh, they're outrageous and, and just uh, ridiculous. Uh, other times they're, they're clever and subtle. Uh, sometimes accusations may be, may be justified, other times they're not. Sometimes they're, they're blatantly false, other times there might be a, a mixture of truth and lies. One thing we can be sure of, though, is that criticism and attacks will come. Maybe some of you are facing criticisms and accusations. Perhaps you're living with these sorts of things now. How do we respond when we are attacked? I think it can be complex and difficult. Uh, at times we may need to, to listen, we may need to learn, we may need to take some things on board. At other times we'll need to, to defend ourselves, refute lies. Sometimes we may need to, to change course, we may need to be corrected. Other times we need to stand firm and not be moved. It, it can be messy, it can be complex and complicated to know, well, how do we respond when criticism comes our way? How do we get the, the balance right I reckon we could do well to, uh, to learn from the example of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10 as he follows the example of his Lord Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is draw out seven principles that we see in Paul's example. Seven principles which I, I hope will help us as we approach these complexities in life and in the church and in particular in Christian leadership. Now this is probably showing my age but... Um, I wonder who's heard of the, the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Yeah, we've got, yep, yep, yep. You're old as well as I am, you know. It was, it was written in 1989, so um, those who were around and, and tuned into these sorts of things then may have come across this book. It's a business self help book 
um, which I haven't actually read. But um, I want to go one up on Stephen Covey this morning, give us something which I think is much more useful, and outline what we see here in uh, chapter 10 in Paul's example, the seven habits of extremely godly leaders under attack. And uh, I'm indebted to that same commentary by uh, Gary Miller, um, for this, this breakup of this chapter, but I, I think it's a, it's a great way of capturing what this chapter says, and I trust that these seven habits or characteristics will help us as we face opposition, as we face attack. So first habit, be humble and gentle. Verse 1, Paul says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you when away. Now here Paul, he steps out on his own. He says, I, Paul, I, I appeal to you. He's not writing here with, with Timothy, his, his apostolic band. He, he highlights himself and his humility, his gentleness, his meekness, as some translations put it. And it seems that this was actually one of the things that Paul was, was criticised for. He was judged as, you see there, verse 1, timid. In verse 10, he says that some say in person he is unimpressive. I think there's a certain irony in uh, accusing him of, of humility and meekness. I mean, they're, they're basically accusing him of being godly, of being like Jesus, the one who is gentle and lowly, who is um, humble and meek, the Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul's opponents clearly didn't value humility, but Paul gladly wears that, that accusation as a badge of honour. He says, notice it's by the humility and gentleness of Christ. He's imitating his Lord. He's striving to be humble and gentle. And that's a habit for us to develop, for us to display when we are under attack, to speak and to act with gentleness, with humility, the gentleness and humility of Christ. Now, I think that's easier said than done. It can be hard to do that when when we're under attack, but we should strive to, as Philippians 2 says, have that same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, to be Truly humble and gentle. So be humble and gentle. But at the same time, we must, habit number two, trust the truth. Paul says, verse two, I beg you that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Now, Paul has been uh, judged, uh, condemned uh, according to the standards of, of the world. Paul wasn't interested in in measuring up, measuring up to their kind of worldly picture of success. And even though he was uh, was pursuing humility and gentleness, that didn't make him a doormat. I mean, he wasn't just kind of copying whatever. He wasn't going to be swayed by worldly criticism. Rather, he trusted the truth. And that at times, well, that, that called for a certain boldness on his part. He clung to the gospel and he fought against and demolished lies and false ideas. Notice he says, verse 4, he says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He fights with divine power, God's power, 
the power that the truth has. Power that, it had, that the knowledge of God has. As he continues, verse 5, he says, it, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, I think there are so many uh, thoughts and, and philosophies and ideas of, of, of this world that do that, that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. I, mean, I can think of a bunch of, um, bunch of isms, like materialism, the, the belief that you know, this world is all there is, so just live for, live for stuff, you know, live for wealth, live for possessions, greed. Or hedonism, living for, for pleasure getting the most pleasure you can out of life. Uh, or another one I think is growing in, in influence, um, environmentalism, living for, I don't know, the earth, I guess. I reckon that's taken on a strong moral, perhaps even kind of religious importance, an, an overarching you know, drive in life. I noticed uh, on the side of a bus uh, the other day, a, uh, an ad, I think it was for, um, to go into a career in, in early childcare. And it had a picture of someone reading a book to a child. And the, the book that they were reading had a, a cartoon of a blimp with the message, Recycle. And the book said this, So tell your friends what it means to be green and spread the word. If we can all be green, we can save the world. Apparently that's the message to live by. That's the message to, to pass on. That's the word to pass on to the next generation. That's the way to save the world. I think another dominant ism that, uh, that our world sets up in, in opposition to God is individualism in all its various forms, uh, living for the God of self in whatever way that I choose to be, in whatever reality that I shape for myself. The truth of the knowledge of God cuts across all these isms. And we ought to trust the truth. I reckon when we're under attack by these, these various voices, I, I reckon we can feel the pressure just to kind of retreat, to give in. And in, in the name of so-called tolerance, to, to not trust the truth, not apply the truth, not show up the, the godless pretensions that call for our allegiance. But if we do trust the truth, then obedience to Christ, as Paul says, we take every thought captive, make it, uh, sorry, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Obedience to Christ, that will be the overarching rule and standard by which Everything is measured, by which everything is judged. And so we say, well, does, does living for stuff as the primary goal in life, does, does that align with obedience to Christ? No. Does living for pleasure as the overarching rule in life, does that align with obedience to Christ? No. Does living for recycling as the overarching rule in life, does, does that align with obedience to Christ? No. Does living for myself and my own self-determined life and identity, does, does that align with obedience to Christ? No. So yes, be humble and gentle, but trust the truth and use it to show up the lies that oppose the knowledge of God. Well, thirdly, as we, we come to this third habit, notice uh, that the criticisms of Paul included being 
judged by appearances, as verse 7 says. And I mentioned before verse 10, in some say in person he's unimpressive, his speaking amounts to nothing. And over in chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker. You get the idea that there's, there's some uh, pretty brutal criticisms going on. I mean, you can imagine them saying things like, Paul, I mean, what a loser. I mean, his preaching's ordinary at best and, well, he's, he's not very impressive. He's, he's really quite dull. That's the accusation that's being levelled against Paul, but Paul doesn't play into their, their game of, by putting his confidence in his skills and his performance, seeking to, to measure up to whatever standards that they might be uh, holding up to him and valuing. No, instead, he puts his confidence in Christ. He puts his confidence in who he is in Christ. And this is habit number three, put your confidence in Christ. He says, verse 7, You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. In the face of criticism, Paul rests on the simple fact, the reality that he is Christ's. That's where his confidence lies. Furthermore, for for Paul, his confidence was was in the fact that Christ had given him authority as his apostle for building up the church in Corinth. So he was happy to, verse 8, boast somewhat freely about this fact, which is not saying anything about Paul and his cleverness, but everything about Christ and his choosing of Paul for this task. Paul's confidence was in Christ. We can have that same confidence and security. If we've acknowledged Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, then we belong to him. We're a member of his family. We're we're part of his body. We belong to Christ. And however well we we may or may not measure up to the, the standards of this world, that's far less important than who we are in Christ. So in the face of criticism, put your confidence in Christ and in the fact that you belong to him. Fourth characteristic, an ongoing commitment to consistency. Uh, One of the charges being leveled against Paul is that uh, he's uh, duplicitous or two-faced. He's he's one thing in his letters, but another in person. So verse 10 says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. They're accusing him of, in effect, being a keyboard warrior. He's you know, mighty behind the keyboard, but a bit of a wimp in person. And I think in our day and age where we can be tempted to hide behind text messages and social media and email and whatnot, I think we ought to ask, are we open to the same charge? Are we one person online and a, and a different person face-to-face? Against that accusation, Paul assures them that he's, he's committed to be the same to them in person as he is in his letters. And I think that kind of consistency, well, that's in keeping with the gospel. And the nature of the gospel is not yes and no in the same sentence Rather, every promise God has made is yes in Christ. God is completely faithful. He is completely consistent. And we should strive to be likewise. 
And we should be quick to admit when, when we fail to, to be consistent. We commit to consistency. So you with me? Be humble and gentle. Trust the truth. Put your confidence in Christ. Commit to consistency. I missed that one. There we are. Uh, fifthly, don't compare. I reckon it's so natural, it's so normal to, to compare ourselves with, with others. It can almost be a constant sort of track that plays in our, in our minds, constantly making evaluations and comparisons with other people. You know, I'm smarter than him. I'm dumber than her. She's got more friends than me. He's a better speaker than me. I'm better looking than her. So much of life, I think that's, that, that kind of goes on. There's this constant comparison, this, this competition, perhaps even subconsciously. We compare ourselves with each other. And that was certainly going on in Corinth. Uh, and Paul says, in short, don't do it, it's dumb. That's my paraphrase of verse 12, which says this. We do not compare, uh, so we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. They're dumb. It's, it's dumb to compare ourselves with and against one another. And really, that's a lot of what lies behind accusations and criticisms. You're not as good as so and so, she's better than you. It's not wise. And when we, when we enter into those kind of comparisons, it either leads us to, to pride, to you know, look at me, look how great I am, or to pride's ugly sister, self-pity. Look at me, I'm so worthless. Don't compare. Instead, sixth habit, focus on what God has given you to do. Here's what Paul is, is striving to do. He doesn't want to enter into to competition with, with what other so-called self-appointed super-apostles are doing and sort of get one up over them. It seems that they're keen to, to cut in on, on, on him and take claim his territory as their own. He doesn't want to do that. He, he doesn't want to vie for position or influence, but rather just to focus on the task that God had given him. Now, in these uh, verses 13 to 17, he talks a bit about boasting. And it can be easy for us to think, oh, gee, that's bad. Boasting's bad, right? You know, you shouldn't boast. We, and it can be bad. I mean, if we're boasting about ourselves and how great we are and how important we are, I mean, that's, that's hardly a, a life of humility and gentleness. But boasting need not be a negative thing. I mean, here Paul quotes the Old Testament scriptures in verse uh, 17. He quotes from Jeremiah uh, chapter 9, verse 24, and which says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So boasting in the Lord is, I mean, that's, that's a positive thing. So boasting can be positive. It can have a sense of, of rejoicing, of marveling, of glorying in something. Which is how Paul is, is, is boasting here. So he says, verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. If I can paraphrase that, he's saying the area, the, the, the sphere of service that we're happy to talk about, that we're happy to boast about, it's an area that includes you because we came to you to serve you by bringing you the gospel. 
Our boast is that, well, we were the ones who brought you the gospel, not because, you know, we're oh so wonderful, but because God assigned that task for us to do. And so he continues, verse 14, he says, we're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. So he's not interested in, in claiming credit for, for other people's ministry. And the same can't be said for those who are opposing him. They're trying to claim credit for his ministry. But what's more, he's, he's not interested in securing his territory as some sort of trophy for himself. No, he wants his ministry in Corinth to, to provide a base to extend the gospel elsewhere. And so he continues, verse 15, he says, Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's not interested in competing with others, taking credit for the work of others. He just wants to focus on the things that God has given him to do. And what a great principle for us to live by. Instead of entering into to competitive comparisons and, and all the criticisms that, that follow, it's liberating to, to see ourselves simply as servants of Christ, to, to put our confidence in Him, to apply ourselves to live for Him in whatever He is assigned for us to do, whatever tasks He puts before us. Which brings us to our seventh habit, Sorry, I missed a few there. Seventh habit, which is to live to please God. Now, Paul's commendation, uh, and for that matter, our commendation, it doesn't come from commending ourselves as we compare ourselves with others. Notice he says, verse 18, For it is not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. We live as children of God seeking to please our Heavenly Father. We live as servants of God, seeking to please our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. And that means even amongst criticisms, even amongst accusation, we can live to please God. We can look ahead to that day when we'll appear before our Lord and Saviour and hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We live ultimately before an audience of one before our Lord and Saviour. Criticism and accusation will come. Let's learn from the example of Paul as he follows Christ, to be humble and gentle, to trust the truth, to put our confidence in Christ with a commitment to consistency, not comparing ourselves with others, but focusing on what God has given us to do as we strive to please God. May God work that in us, may he, he grow us in that more and more, and may we live to honour him in all that we do. Amen.